You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I liked it that Andy stopped and prayed there at the end. Why don't we do this? I want to pray a few minutes and then we'll do the announcements and the offering. But, um, Father, I just pray for Queen City Church. I pray that... Um, you would touch uh, everyone, Lord, looking to you. Lord, that you would inspire people in times when it seems like inspiration is hard to come by. Lord, to anyone that's sick, we pray for them. Lord, we pray against the, the virus. We pray for health and life. We pray for inspiration. Lord, we pray for joy. We ask, Lord, in, in, in times of heaviness, sometimes your joy needs to come. So we look to you for just, Lord, your touch on our lives, your encouragement. Um, Lord, all that you are to us, even parts that we haven't seen yet, even maybe parts that are better than we've known. Uh, we just pray, um, Lord, for our church, for our city, our state, the two Carolinas, our nation. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you have watched the last couple of weeks, um, I've been talking about and teaching out of Luke chapter 15. And Luke chapter 15 uh, is Jesus' response to the scribes and the Pharisees. And I wanted to look at some of these things, again, actually what I want us to do is I want us to rediscover the heart of God. I think um, it's important for us to reevaluate, rethink, listen again to the words of Jesus, maybe listen again to some of the words of Paul, uh, and get the perspective that Jesus has to offer us. So in Luke 15, Jesus begins to uncover his father's true nature through these three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And any of you who haven't read that recently, I really would recommend you reading it. And um, I've covered a lot of it in the last two live stream messages. For those of you who may, who may be interested, you can go back and, and listen through those. But um, Jesus contradicted the understanding and the arrogance of the scribes and Pharisees. And these parables provide a stark contrast between the religion of the day, the viewpoint of the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, but it contrasts the religion of the day and the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed and taught and demonstrated. And so Jesus uses these parables to contrast the difference in two worldviews. And um, these two worldviews are at real odds with each other. And the, the truth of it is, the more you develop Jesus' worldview, um, the more fortified you are to, to live, to excel, to understand. And so Jesus gives these three parables... Um, because of the negativity and the heartlessness that were shown by the scribes and the Pharisees as people gathered. So I like to read these uh, first three verses again to set the stage. Some of you may not, not 
uh, been tuning in the last couple of weeks, but it says this in Luke 15, 1, and I'm reading the mirror translation, which is one more of these great translations that opens things up. Now, all the people of reputation, the infamous tax collectors, as well as your regular sinners, were in the habit of crowding Jesus. They were magnetically drawn to him, addicted to his conversation. Now, that says so much to me about the Lord. Um, there was something so magnetic about Jesus. There was something about his life in God. It was something about the power of the Spirit in his life that people of reputation, infamous tax collectors, and regular, it says regular sinners, I don't know what that is, um, but they were in habit of crowding around Jesus whenever he was a public and, and speaking. The Bible tells us they were magnetically drawn to him, even addicted to his conversation. Now, there was a different response to Jesus by the Pharisees and the law professors. They were furiously complaining about the warm hospitality with which Jesus embraced these people in their frequent banquets. The constant murmuring of the professional religious leaders inspired these three parables that Jesus told. And one of the things that really touched me this week as I was thinking about the heart of God is that Jesus actually describes in some pretty definite terms, indefinite Bible passages, passages what his father's like. And here's why we need these passages. Everybody listen to me now. Okay, kids in the couch there in that home, I see you. You need to come. Not, not really. Come on. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who are watching this later, it won't be later on the video. It will be right now. On the, you'll watch it later, so I'm trying to keep up. But why do we need these passages where Jesus begins to reveal to us, often in very clear terms, what God is like, what his Father is like, and really what Jesus is like? Well, it's because our life experiences and both our religious and secular upbringing don't give us accurate ways to understand and know the Lord accurately. Actually, if we didn't have the scripture, we would, you know, people talk about what a mess the Bible is. Hey, let me say this. What a mess life would be like without the Bible. What a mess life would be like without the Bible. Because we need to be challenged. We need to be contradicted. We need to be comforted. We need to be inspired. We need to be all of those things and many others. And the Bible really has the capacity to do that uh, for us. But if we just go by the things that happen to us in our lives and other people's ideas and concepts and philosophies, particularly when they contradict the things we've learned and seen in the scriptures, we would never really know what God is like and we would have no way to deal with life in any sort of redemptive or positive way. So I want us to consider some of these words of Jesus and some other verses as we can cons as we consider what God wants us to know about who he is and how he thinks. How many of you people think that's important? I see that hand. Okay. John 1.18 in the Passion Translation affirms this. It says this. Uh, this should show up on your screen, but I'll be glad to read it. No one... 
listen to this. No one, no one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor except the uniquely beloved son. Now, there are times we find in the Bible where humans have actually seen God at some level. But what John is writing here is that no one has ever gazed upon all that God the Father is except the uniquely beloved Son. So the place you're going to get the most accurate idea of who God is is only located in one person, and that's the Lord Jesus. And the most we know about what that one person said we find basically in the Scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. This uniquely beloved son who was cherished by the father and held close to his heart, listen to this, now he has unfolded to us the full explanation of who God truly is. Yes, Jesus tells us in parables and also at times plainly who God truly is, what he's really like. So what is a father like? Well, I'm going to talk about if I get to all of them, maybe four or five, maybe six different things. But the first one I want to say is this. What is God like? What is the Father like? He would rather bear shame than shame you or me. Let me say that again. He would rather bear shame than shame us. When you look at... um, the, the, particularly the third parable, the parable called the parable of the prodigal son, we find that the father saw the son returning from his disastrous foray into the world from a long way off. He was looking for him. And what we don't realize in our culture, but it was true in the culture of the day, it was shameful for the prodigal's father to run out to greet his son In the culture of that day, an older man would humiliate himself by pulling up his robes, showing his legs, and running in public. So, his father was willing to bear the shame to get to the son. Now, the reason he ran to the son was, I mentioned this earlier, you may want to research yourself, there's a tradition called kivava. And what that tradition was, any Jewish man who lost his resources to Gentiles was ashamed to the community And if he tried to return home, prominent people in the community would go out and meet him before he could get through the city gates, and they would literally break a vessel, and that would represent your relationship with us is broken, and you're not welcome here. So the father saw the son a long way off. He bore his own shame in hiking up his clothes and outrunning anyone who would try to bring additional shame to his son who had already suffered greatly by his foolishness. So that's one point about shame. Um, Another point about the prodigal son father, he humiliated himself when he left the celebration he gave for his returning son in order to beseech his older brother to come in and join the celebration. Because in that culture, the older son's job or uh, in tradition his place in, the, in, in their affairs was to co-host any sort of celebration they conducted. Not only would he not come in, 
He refused. He got angry. And once again, the father humiliated himself by going out and beseeching, beseeching, begging his older son to come in. Now, in that culture, that was grounds to be disinherited by the father, to refuse to fulfill the duties of the elder son. But his father did just the opposite because our God's a God who'd rather bear shame than cause shame. How many of you can hear that? People that have dealt with shame. He'd rather bear shame than cause shame. Of course, the ultimate shame. We find that listed in Hebrews 12 too. It's about what Jesus suffered in both his scourging and his crucifixion. One of the most powerful encounters I've ever had with the Lord in the middle of the night, I had a a vision of Jesus being scourged. And it affected me emotionally for two or three days. And I don't know that I've ever gotten over it. I saw it. Did I see the actual scourging? Well, you know, probably not. But whatever I saw absolutely broke my heart. I saw... Jesus with his wrist tied to a iron ring that was either in a post or in a wall. And every time they hit Jesus, he would come completely off his feet in agony. It looked like a wild animal being beaten. That was part of the shame, the nakedness, the, the, the torture, the things that they did to his body. And then of course the horrible, um, agony of being, uh, crucified and exposed uh, before heaven, heaven and earth. All of those were the shame, part of the shame that Jesus suffered. And Hebrews twelve two says that we should look unto Jesus. In other words, we should take into account this Jesus and all that he has done because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. You know, sometimes we may feel like we don't have faith, but you know we have the author of faith. Sometimes we may not feel like our faith is complete, but we have the completer, the finisher of our faith in the person of the Lord Jesus. We do. We do. I have talked at times about sometimes maybe you don't have faith and people have given me a hard time, but I'm talking about not theoretical faith. I'm talking about the kind of faith it takes to go through life's difficulties and also the kind of faith Jesus wants to give us to not just endure trials, but to become overcomers as well. Well, he's not just the author of our faith. He's also the finisher of our faith. He knows how to get us all the way through whatever it is we find ourselves in. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that phrase, despising the shame, it's not the same word. um, I've heard people say in anger or judgment, they despise someone. That's more like a hatred. But Jesus was belittling the shame. He counted the shame as something small, for the joy that was set before him. And I think that's very powerful. But anyway, Hebrews 12, 2 tells about the shame that Jesus experienced on the cross and yet how he related to it. 
And he did that for us. We can never forget that. He did that for us. I think, too, about 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. And see, what you see in the story of the prodigal son is you see an accurate picture of God the Father in the way he related both to a son who had gotten into sort of a terrible moral lifestyle and also the older brother who had a different kind of relationship with the father, but it was still an inaccurate one. He beseeched. He begged. We, we, we don't see a begging God in, in so many ways. Nevertheless, that's truly a characteristic. That's what Paul's saying here, that now in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21, we as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were doing what? Pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse 21 is very hard for me to understand. But all I know is this, Jesus became sin in, in, in such a way that we could not have to bear our own sin, but actually be reconciled to God. And when you look at that verse, the, the, um, the understanding is God is already reconciled to us. The plea is let us be reconciled to him. That, that's the plea of the prodigal to the older brother. That's the plea to uh, to, to God, to the world. That's the plea to pastors, to churches. You know, one of the things I saw about the lost coin, it made it very clear the coin was in the house. It was lost in the house. And one of the things I know is that there are people that know the Lord. They're actually included in the household of faith, but in some ways they're still lost because they don't yet really know who they are. They haven't fully accepted the fact that they're no longer children, but they're called into this place of being sons to a father who is a remarkable person worth losing everything to know. Lost in the house. I see people on the internet and I know they're lost in the house. I've been saved 55 to 60 years. I know people that get lost in the house. But the key to not being lost in your nature is to know who the Father really is. That's one of the ways we find out uh, our identity. We, we discover it through relationship with the Father. That was the first thing I wanted to talk about. So here's the second one. He's kind to the unthankful. Find this in Luke 34 through 36. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And here's that phrase. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. So this, this is who Jesus knew his Father to be. 
I think in the general uh, scope of things, God is not considered to be a person who's kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Jesus says he is. Number three, God has a great memory. I'm going to read Hebrews 6.10 in two different translations. The first one, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name. How many of you um, have done things, you've done things for people, you've sacrificed, and it's like it's never been rewarded or acknowledged? Well, first of all, I think, um, what is it? We shouldn't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. There needs to be this place where we do things for people for them and not for people to know that we did it for them. Because then we're really sort of still doing it for us. But there's this idea here that people are forgotten. There's this thing that can work on people's hearts to further alienate them from the Lord is that the Lord doesn't remember. So Paul writes this, for God is not unjust. He's not unjust to forget means he's just to remember your work your labor of love, which you've shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. I want to read that again in the Passion Translation. For God, the faithful one, is not unfair. How can he forget the beautiful work you have done for him? He remembers the love you demonstrate as you continually serve his beloved ones for the glory of his name. I think about some of the giving scriptures over the years, one of them out of the Old Testament, it says this. It says, cast your bread upon the waters and it will be returned to you in many days. And that's that same idea. That can be applied to finances. It can be that um, we don't talk a whole lot about giving and we haven't really needed to. People have been faithful. People have been really good. But There's this idea in the Old Testament that when you give something or when you, not just finances, maybe in in a benefit for someone or in helping someone, there's this idea, and it's a true idea, that God is no man's debtor. He will restore. He will repay. But it may be a long time coming. Cast your bread upon the waters, and it will be returned unto you, the Bible says, in many days. And so there's that place where we have done the things we're supposed to do. We've done the things we felt required of us, and we haven't really seen like there was a blessing in it. But there is a blessing in it. Let's just say this. Maybe it hasn't come yet. But God's a God who loves to bless us. And he's a God who never forgets. Even when we believe he's forgotten us. Even when we tell him he's forgotten us. I, I remember this in Isaiah 49. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. And, and the Lord says back, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely even a nursing mother might forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you. On the palms of my hands, your walls are continually 
before me. And there's a whole lot I could say about that. The inscription. It could actually speak of the scars of the crucifixion. Or there's some history that in ancient days, people would inscribe the names of their children on their hands. But here's one thing I've thought about. I've thought about faith, hope, and love. You know, I wrote that book a couple years ago on hope. And I've had the Lord speak to me a lot over the years about hope. But hope is not the only one of those big three that Paul reminds us of. What are those three? You remember faith, hope, and love. And as I was writing that book, I felt like the Lord began to speak to me about faith, hope, and love. And one of the things I felt like he said to me was they were like three sisters. They're related. They're like three sisters. Hope says, I know things will work out. I just don't know how or when. So that's what Sister Hope says. Her sister Faith says, they've already worked out. Even before they do an actual experience or before a breakthrough comes. But what does love say? Even if they don't work out, even if I don't understand what's going on, nothing can separate me from the affection God has for me. Faith says it's done. Hope says I expectantly wait for it. Love says whether it happens or not, nothing can separate me from God's affection. And the Apostle Paul says the greatest of these three is which one? It's love. It's love. I can remember a number a number of years ago, um, before a, a real needed breakthrough in my life. Um, I had come to, actually, I had come to a place where all I could do was cry. How many of you know that place? That's all I had left. And I can remember crying so hard that even even my breathing changed. I mean, as I began to inhale, I, I, this sounds strange, and I don't. I'm just telling you what happened. When I inhaled, it was like I could hear the enemy laughing at me, and it was probably one of the very, very lowest moments of my life. And one of the scriptures the Lord gave me is out of Psalm 56.8. And so part number four I want to say today is God pastors our tears. Let me say that again. God pastors our tears. Psalm 56.8 says, you number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? And then this very poetic expression, the psalmist is asking for God to not forget his heartache and his tears. And we know that it's not wrong to weep. David wept. Jesus wept. Nature can prompt us to weep. And it's not wrong to weep. But somewhere in the providence of God, he has made this poetic promise that he has captured every one of our tears He has put them in a bottle. He has listed our heartaches in a book of remembrance that's described, I believe, in Malachi chapter, I think it's chapter 3. And even Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said that tears are liquid prayers. And I really like that. So once again, Psalm 56, 8, you have collected all my tears 
in your bottle. And this shows me that not only does God know every single tear you've cried, but he keeps track of what made you cry. He studies your heartbreak so that he can heal you and comfort you and give you joy in a way that's unique to only you. I think what I'll do is I'm going to end on number five, but I have a couple more I'll do probably next week. Number five, God's care is explicit. What does explicit mean? It's stated clearly and in detail, leaving no room for confusion or or doubt. In Matthew 10, verse 29 through 31, Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of those sparrows falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so I'm just going to leave you with that. God's care is explicit. Next week, I'm going to talk about repentance, but I'm going to talk about it in a little little different way. I'm going to talk about it in the way that Jesus mentioned it in Luke chapter 15 and how it is that he celebrates our repentance. But why don't we, why don't we do this? Why don't we close in prayer? Well, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you for an opportunity to worship you. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, I ask that your word would pierce, would penetrate, would restore, would um, grace our hearts in more depth, in greater measure, in more consistent ways. Father, thank you so much for your heart, for your care for us. And we bless you, we bless you, we bless you. Lord Jesus, we bless you, God, our Father, and Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for what you do among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.